Well, this morning I want to spend a little bit of time with our reading from the book of James. I always like the book of James because it is a very practical book. Uh, It is argued by many uh, to be one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, book in the New Testament. Uh, And what you find when you read the book of James uh, is, in a sense, a, a primitive Christianity. Uh, It's a Christian faith that has not become very theological or abstract. Uh, You don't have to go to seminary to understand what James is talking about. It is practical and very clear and simple. Now, we don't know who this James is who wrote uh, this letter. We have a number of people uh, named James in the New Testament, obviously a popular name back then. There are two apostles named James. There's also James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, There's James, the first bishop of Jerusalem. There's the James who wrote this letter. And to be honest, we don't know for sure which one is which. So we don't know which James wrote this, but we do know that it's written very early on in the life of the church. And the focus of this letter is on lifestyle. It's very practical. It's about how we live as Christians. So, for example, from our passage, we read this. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? And James makes the point, and he he makes this over and over again in different ways in the letter, the point that faith or belief by itself, if it has no works, it is dead. It's useless. It's not alive. If your faith doesn't manifest itself in how you live, if there's no change in your behavior, if your life doesn't look different, then your neighbor, who doesn't believe, then James wants to say, why does it matter? Who cares if you believe in Jesus if it doesn't actually impact your life? Now, there's one specific verse that we read today. It's verse 19 from chapter 2 that's always struck me, and I know the verse numbers are not in your bulletin, uh, but if you would grab your bulletin, I want to I read this to you. It, I'm going to start at the beginning of the second paragraph of the reading that we have in our bulletin for James, and I'll point this verse out, and it's the verse that talks about demons. But this is what James says. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. And here's the verse. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe and shudder. In order to make his point that faith without works is dead, is useless, In order to make this point, 
what James does is he lifts up for us as an example uh, the life of, of demons. Jonathan Edwards, as many of us know, uh, lived in the 18th century, one of the great American preachers, very influential in the first great awakening. Uh, he preached a sermon on this, this little verse, a rather long sermon, uh, and he talks about this faith of demons. Uh, the sermon is called this. This is the title. True grace as distinguished from the experience of devils. They don't make sermon titles like they used to. True grace as distinguished from the experience of devils. And what he does, in order to make the same point that James is making, is he says, let me show you two things that demons have. Good things. Perfectly wonderful things. But he says, I want, to, I want you to see that you can have these two things and still just be a demon. First thing he says, sound doctrine. Biblical, orthodox doctrine about God and about the Christ. Remember James wrote, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe this. Edwards reminds us that the demons, they know a, a lot about God. In fact, the demons have been to the, the best seminary in the entire universe. One of his quotes, he says, the devils have been to the greatest divinity school in the universe. They have been to the heavens of heavens. They've been in the throne room of God. The demons know more doctrine, they know more teaching than any saint who has ever lived. And he says there's nothing wrong with the knowledge of God. In fact, we should be seeking to grow in our knowledge of God. But he reminds us that knowledge by itself, it doesn't make us any better than the demons. Second thing Edward says that we can have and still be like the demons. Again, I'm going to go back to that verse. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Edwards looks at this word shudder, which is a really kind of a fascinating word uh, and a fascinating image, these demons shuddering. And he says, you see, the demons, they not only believe in God, the truth of God, but they also respect the power of God. They respect the majesty of God, the greatness of God. And they're scared of God because of these things. And because of this awareness, it actually affects their behavior. They shudder. They change the way they behave because of their knowledge of God and of who God is. And Edward says, if it's possible for the demons to do this, then it's also possible for human beings to believe that God is great, to believe in His majesty, and because of their respect and fear of God, 
to alter their behavior, that their knowledge and fear, it can make them a very moral person, a very religious person. And yet he says in those cases, your religion and your morality is nothing more than shuddering. To say that you know there's a God, there's probably a God, you certainly can't disprove that there's a God. And then to realize that if you displease a God like this, well, then you're in tremendous trouble. And so you respond by becoming a moral or a religious person, and yet it's nothing but shuddering. Edward says all that does is it qualifies you to be a demon. And I think the scary thing is we know this is true. I think we've all encountered religion that says all the right things and even does a lot of the right things, and yet we know there's something not right, there's something missing. It's not authentic, it's not alive, it's, it's a shuddering. Because at the end of the day, and this is Edwards and, and James's point, the behavior is driven by fear, and that is something very, very different than behavior driven by love. A life lived in the presence of God is a life motivated by love. That's James's argument here, that our life as Christians is to be a response to the love of God, so much so that the love that is encountered in Christ it flows through us into the world. We participate, in a sense, in this love, and that love drives us out into the world to meet the needs of our neighbors, something very different than shuddering, a different type of faith. Some of you may be familiar with a gentleman named John Perkins, Uh, an amazing man with an amazing story. Uh, Perkins was born in 1930 in rural Mississippi. When he was eight years old, I'm sorry, eight months old, his mother died of pellagra, uh, which is caused by malnourishment. It's the lack of niacin or, or vitamin B3. When this happened, so he's eight months old, his father abandoned him, and he was raised by his grandmother and extended family who were sharecroppers. When Perkins was 17, his brother died following being beaten by a white police officer. And so at that point, his family decided that they needed to get young Perkins out of Mississippi. And somehow, they got him to California where he could finish his schooling, went to college, got a job, started a family, and began to live a normal life. Now, when he was in his late 20s, he became a Christian, uh, got very involved in his church and different, different ministries. And one day, he was asked by some men in his church to go with them to visit a juvenile detention center. Uh, the center was for young men aged 13 to 17, and most of them, says Perkins, were black. Recounting this event, he writes this, These boys in the prison had backgrounds just like mine. 
Their voices and their accents sounded like guys I grew up with. Like me, they grew up without many skills and without much education. Like me, they didn't have a strong religious background. And Perkins says that when he got home, over the next few days and next few weeks, he started um, feeling convicted by this, this visit. He writes this, I had escaped their fate by God's grace, and so if God had done all this for me, and if He loved these others no less than He did me, what did all this mean? What did it say to my plans for my Christian life? And he says, slowly, this conviction became a command. He says, I remember the night it happened, the night God spoke to me through His Word about going back to Mississippi and starting a ministry for Him there. I was reading from the Bible, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel, that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And then Perkins writes, As I read this verse, God took the power of His love for His people and shot it through me. God took the power of His love for His people and shot it through me, saying, John, my desire for you is that you go back to Mississippi because I bear your people witness that they have a zeal for God but it is not enlightened. And so he went, empowered by this love that he said had been shot through him. Took his wife and children, and they started Voice of Calvary Ministries in Mendenhall, Mississippi. They started Bible classes, they developed programs to send students to college. They started a child care center, started a leadership development program a housing cooperative, a farmer's cooperative, a retail cooperative. They started a health care center, a legal aid center. Just like James talks about, he sought to minister to the whole person to meet their needs. He worked for civil rights, was jailed, beaten. And what's amazing is his witness throughout all of this of that love of God that had been shot through him. He writes, I saw with horror how hate destroys us, this whole business of hating and hating back. It's what keeps the vicious cycle of racism going. He says, Jesus looked at the mob that lynched him and he forgave them. It's a profound, mysterious truth Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true because it happened to me. Perkins is still alive. He's in his early 90s. He still does some ministry. One of his largest ministries now is called the Christian Community Development Association. 
And they seek to, and this is from their website, they seek to equip Christians to fully engage in the process of transformation in their communities. Perkins has a book. It's called Let Justice Roll Down. And the foreword is written by Senator Mark Hatfield, served in the Senate for 30 years. But this is what Hatfield writes in the foreword to the book, and I think this helps connect Perkins' life to our reading from James. Hatfield says, This is the story of a black man who was nearly a martyr and is surely a modern saint. Most of us have never known any of the ruthless poverty the raw violence and hardened injustice that were inflicted inflicted upon John Perkins as a black person in Mississippi. And there are few whom I have ever known whose lives have responded to such overwhelming indignities with such a witness of miraculous compassion, vision, and hope. Hatfield says, the story of John Perkins reveals the transforming and revolutionary power of Jesus Christ. It is the story about the cost of discipleship and the relentless hope and limitless love which can be born in the hearts of those who follow Jesus. Perkins had a faith empowered by love, not a faith that shuddered. James, in our reading today, he issues a call to us. It's a simple call, and yet I think awesome in scope. He says, what good is faith if you turn your back or close your eyes to others in need? What good is faith if you're not reaching out in love? And I think that should challenge us. I mean, there are a lot of needs in the world right now. There are, will always are. But we think about the local flooding around Humphreys County, Hurricane Ida, Afghanistan, Haiti, and especially the pandemic. After a year and a half, all of us are tired and exhausted from COVID. And I think after a year and a half, it is so easy to forget that our response to the pandemic must be a response of love. Not only love towards those who need our care and support, but also love for one another in the church, especially in the wider church, regarding how the church is responding to the pandemic. More and more, I hear words of judgment and condemnation from Christians about other Christians. Often what they say is true, there's truth to what they say, and yet their words are not motivated by love. Something else is motivating those words. And so that's the question for us always in our life. What is it that motivates us? What is it that motivates our faith? James says the defining characteristic of a Christian is that they have been so shot through with the love of God that this love becomes manifest in their love and concern for others, for their neighbor. And my prayer for us is that might be true 
in our lives as well. Amen.